I've got two tickets to Parasite. I've got two tickets to Parasite. I've got two tickets to Parasite. Pack your bags and come to the cinema. I'm currently holding two tickets to Parasite. Uh, That was more of a visual joke. Anyway, let's go. So, here we are, the last episode of the Boondoggle podcast for the for a while. I will be back, but, you know, here we are. This is episode 18 of the Boondoggle podcast, a podcast where I, the Boondog, no, Alex Boone, I tell stories from a book that I found in a bush. I'm not going to tell you which bush. There's been many bushes because there've been many books, and I don't. I mean, it's a lot of work doing this podcast. I don't know how Joe Rogan. I think he does like three podcasts a week, but then he doesn't have to look for his books um, in bushes. Get someone else to find his books for him, and he has guests. So this is me looking for books in bushes on the week in during the week and then finding them so it's a lot of work and now we're on episode 18 and it's been good it's been i didn't mean for this one to do be a a lockdown kind of thing as well but the government had other plans as did cov covid um but you know the last episode we'll chill out i'm in a different position i'm currently seated upon a zafu oh my god the lights have just gone out as well shall we fix that no so i'm uh my light goes off at uh 7 p.m i leave it on during the, i've got one of those solar lights not it's not solar powered but it's um it wakes you up uh using light and then if you don't turn it off after 12 hours, it turns off itself. So it goes off about 7 p.m., which is as I'm recording this right now. But we'll record in the dark, a bit more atmospheric. And I, I almost already feel like my senses have been heightened just uh, just as soon as that happened. And I don't know if you you were able to tell as you're listening to this, I'm a lot more seated. I'm a lot less... uh, I don't have the energy of a standing man. I've got the energy of a man seated upon a Zafu. And that is how we will begin today. Because I am... Yeah, it's the last one for a while. Let's all just chill out. Sit upon your Zafu. If you have a Zafu, take a seat upon it. And listen up. As we recall stories from the Boondoggle.
include the story of Mudguard Stripling, the um, Rudyard Kipling cycling-themed stripper. Um, you may have been thinking, the last two episodes haven't actually had that much drama. Um, but it's all coming to a head this week, so buckle up for this episode titled You're Not the Prey. Mudguard quivered as the bear rose upon its hind legs. She hadn't gone on a bear hunt, but she was scared. She turned to the crew, but Bunce and Stu just stood there, keeping the camera on her. Stu gave her the thumbs up. She was about to run. She could easily outrun those couple of bozos. They'd be dinner before her. Then a voice came into her head. You're not the fucking prey, mate. It was Jen Asflick. You're the fucking predator. She'd heard it in Dingo Dongos all those years ago, when she first started. You're not the fucking prey, mate. You're the fucking predator. She heard it again. What use was it out here in the rainforest, though? What do you mean, Jen? I'm in your head, mud. I'm just your bloody memories. Hawk, come on, Jen, give us a clue. In the background, the sounds of the club remained, as if she was still there. Strip, 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 came the sounds of the rowdy blokes and the occasional woman. Now can do, Miss Stripling. This one's on you. Strip, strip, strip. The chants fade into the background. The bear roared, bringing her back into the moment. He took another step towards her. Crikey, I've got it. I'm the bloody predator. She started swaying her hips from side to side. Hey, bear? But her lips still trembled. You're the predator, said Jen Asflick again in her ear. She tightened her lips and stared right in the bear's eyes, still shaking those hips from side to side. The camera on Bunt's shoulder was shaking all over the place as his knees trembled. What the bloody hell is she doing? said Stu. Uh, time we made him run for it, boss, said Bunce. No, no, mate. It may not be the telly we were after, but this is telly all right. The bear stopped in its tracks. His eyes followed her hips as they swayed side to side. Yeah, that's it, bear. That's it. You're the prey, mate. I'm the predator. She undid a button, button on her top, revealing a little more for the bear. And I'll tell you what, the bear couldn't take his eyes off her. Get a load of this, said Stu. Before long, she was down to her underwear, swinging it around her head. And the bear, the bear was writhing around on the floor, driven into a frenzy. She slowly approached the bear, keeping her moves going, then stepped around him and into the entrance of the cave. Minutes later, the bear snapped out of his trance and looked around. Where she once was, she was no longer. Instead, his attention turned to the crew in charge of this mess, Stu and Bunce. Oh, boss, come on, mate. We really gotta go now, said Bunce. Who's the director here, Bunce? I know how this goes. The bear comes for us, old Rogan Hogan comes from behind, saves the day. 
TV sensation of the year. Buds, mark my words. The bear padded forwards. Despite the frigid temperatures, the two men sweated profusely. Bunce reached out for Stu's hand, but he flinched away. Saliva dripped from the mouth of the bear. Oh, Rogan, go on, mate. But she was too busy making herself at home in the cave. So you so you find yourself a soft piece of the green stuff, and you lay yourself down, eh, hey, mate? Uh, you, you got yourself a bed. She spoke to the non-existent camera. Meanwhile, the lives of the instigators of this adventure hung in the balance. Strip, pants, Strip! Oh, what? Get your kid off. You saw the girl. He loves it. Bunce dropped the camera and pulled his shirt off to reveal his hairy chest and flabby body. This sort of dad bod may be popular amongst the human community these days, but the bear was having none of it. Shake it, Bunce. Bloody hell, mate. Let me try. Stu tore his shirt off too to reveal a buff, well-worked-out chest. He shook himself about, he shook himself about, but the still the bear was having none of it. He bounded towards the both of them and pounced, swiping his claws like a combine harvester. Within seconds, the two men were ripped to shreds and eaten by the bear. Once finished, he turned back to his cave to find Mudguard standing in the doorway. He looked at her pleadingly, but she simply responded, Nah, mate. I'm the fucking predator. On your way. She pointed deep into the forest. Obediently, the bear acknowledged the request and headed off. Mudguard shivered. Once the adrenaline was gone, she realised she was standing in her underwear as temperatures dropped to freezing point. She gathered her clothes up and threw them back on. She stepped out of the den and looked for a way back home. She wandered over to where the two men were mauled and heard a radio crackling. Any update, guys? Is she ballsied up yet? Came the voice. Rogan picked up the radio from the mess of blood and guts and held it to her face. Well, I think you could say it has been ballsed up, but not by Mudguard Stripling. Who's Mudguard Stripling? I thought your name was Rogan Hogan. I'm Mud I'm Mudguard Stripling and I'm a world class stripper she said, punching her fists in the air. Well done you Now what the fuck's happened? Uh, the crew have been mauled by a bear Oh fucking hell Alright we'll uh, come and get ya Within an hour she was back on the boat to the mainland along with a bin bag full of the crew. Something for the family to bury. The footage was leaked about a month later, and the nation was enamoured with her once more. However, this time it was not Rogan Hogan they were so in love with, but Mudguard Stripling, Australia's number one Rudyard Kipling cycling-themed stripper. The production company stayed true to their promise, and after a national campaign... They elected for Mudguard herself to be commemorated alongside her parents in statue form. Stood next to them, dressed in her full lycra outfit. She returned to Dingo Dongos 
a new woman, and one with great big tips. Yes, I said tips. Finally, a bit of action in that story. It's kind of... Uh, it's, it's had a lot of build-up. And uh, I don't know if the ending was completely satisfactory, but that's what happens when you find your books in bloody bushes, all right? I felt like it was kind of like um, uh, Joe Cornish's doodle story featured on there. Over many years on the Adam Buxton podcast, it, it was drawn out over three episodes and it could have been condensed into one. But that's, it was, you know, there's a lot of emotion in that uh, in that story. And it's a lesson we all need to learn um, that people, strippers, Hmm. What do we need to learn from that? What do we need to learn? Well, I need to learn not to underestimate people like my guy Stripling. And that just because you can make good telly from putting people into uh, dangerous situations, that doesn't mean you should. Because you'll probably get mauled by a bear. Or a metaphorical bear. Or you may end up on top and earn lots of money from putting people in bad situations like, uh, you know, if you're the producers of Love Island, for instance, this could be an analogy for that. God, I don't know how I've got there, but I've got there. And, uh, yeah, you can end up with lots of money, but you'll feel guilt at the end of the day because of the pain you've put these people through. And that, is what is reflected in the story of Mudguard Stripling. And if you didn't get that, then maybe you want to go back to school and look at your bloody spark notes once again. Because it was there. It was an analogy for that. I mentioned last week, got the audiobook of Middlemarch. But now... A lot of people like that book. A lot of people say George Eliot's written one of the best novels of in the in the world, one of the best English novels. But I'll tell you what, I can't stand them. I well, I can put up with it when I'm on runs, but I'm not. I'm not reaching back for it anytime soon. It's a, like a mutually agreed thing for my runs um, because I used to uh, not have anything in my ears because I was like, no, this is mindful time. This is time for you in your own head. But then I watched a documentary on BBC that said that to have the brain stimulated while doing exercise is even better for your mental health. So now I've got Old Middlemarch stimulating the brain. But those, what the hell is going on in that book? It's, it it could be half as long and it's just witterings of toffs. Nonsense. 
and I just, you know, I don't know if I'm uh, a Philistine, if I don't get it, but middle March. What the hell? Who needs it? Who cares? Who cares about these, um, who cares about the goings on in middle March? I'd rather watch EastEnders. I care about um, Adam Woodyat. I mean, Ian Beale. I care that he's homeless when he was homeless. I haven't watched it in years, but I'd rather watch... Hmm, is this a big commitment? I'd rather watch 35 hours of EastEnders than listen to 35 hours of Middlemarch. No, do I? Do I? Do I? I don't know. But it's uh, it's no Mission Impossible. That's all I'll say. But I'm getting through it slowly. Maybe my mind will be changed. Or maybe it's just the narration on the audiobook. But oh, all those characters and their quibbles and their foibles. Come on. And people have said... Because I, when I was going on about Marriage Story uh, a couple of years ago, saying it was, I don't know, a year, just about a year ago now, I think it's one of the best films of uh, the 21st century, Marriage Story. But some people are saying, who cares about these, these problems of uh, the rich? But they were relatable. But these problems of bloody Middlemarch... I cannot relate. I cannot relate. But you gotta laugh. You just gotta you gotta laugh about it sometimes and you'll get through it. And now we will continue with part two. After I've ranted about Middlemarch, it's weird that I've been, you know, you might think it's weird that I've been listening to an audiobook of Middlemarch and then we end up having a story that's closely related to that kind of world of Middlemarch, but um, that just may be because I was like uh, subconsciously um, thinking about it or even consciously thinking about Middlemarch. And then when I was looking for the book, um, I just found, you know, one of the boondoggle books that happened to have that in it. There may be something supernatural there. There may be just coincidence. I couldn't possibly comment. You might remember uh, last week um, on Journey to Pinkleton, uh, our friend Jemima, she's got this obsession with fishing. And Marjorie... She wants to get in the undies of old Mr. Pinkleton. But Jemima has been told she is not to get into fishing. And Marjorie clonked her around the head with a book, uh, The Great British Guide to Angling. So there's a little bit of a feud going on. And they've just got to Pinkleton's house. And she's met, and Jemima's met, Tomo. Pinkleton's uh, distant cousin, who's probably adopted, and his hand smells of fish. And there's a little 
thing going on between them. But now let us begin with part two of Journey to Pinkleton. Jemima clutched Tomo's hand to her face far longer than would be deemed acceptable in most cases, but it was his fishy whiff that made her quiver so much about the knees and feel all dainty within. She released his hand and Tomo smiled in a shy manner, similar to that of a stable boy when one mentions the tattered shoes upon his feet and comments that he's probably not long for a sacking if he continues to show this level of care for his appearance. Tomo raised Jemima's hand to his lips and breathed in deeply. Oh, bloody hell, you don't partake in fishing yourself, do you, Miss Jemima? Pinkleton watched from beside them, while Marjorie clutched onto his arm and pushed her bosom against him. Thomas, boy, what on earth are you doing? Poor Jemima does not enjoy fishing, for she is a fine young lady. You're embarrassing our esteemed guests. Why, actually, I do, said Jemima. You don't have to repeat the little urchin, Jemima. He's probably adopted anyway. Oh, no, 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 I do love fishing. Every night the trout and the perch splash through my dreams, and the cod too. So rampant is my mind with love of fish that it need not distinguish between the fresh water and salt water varieties. I long to spend every waking hour by the water, my rod dangling into the depths. I watch until the float dips in, and I strike. Oh, I'd be doing it right now if I could. You're simply being ridiculous, Miss Parfrey, and I don't know if this is a game of kiss me do, sir, but you're playing with me, and I will not continue with it. He turned and marched into the great hall to proceed with the festivities. Marjorie held onto his arm even tighter, as he was unable to notice her bosom so firmly pressed against him. Tomo lingered with Jemima. What you said back then, about the trout and all that, well, how did you know my own dreams? Jemima, that is simply so strange. It's bloody mad, isn't it? She pressed his hand between hers and said, Our dreams are the same, Tomo. Our dreams... Are the same. I do adore your voice, Tomo. You sound like you could barely afford a lake yourself. Well, actually, I haven't got one. I simply fish where I can. At this, Jemima tugged him back to the carriages. You must come fish at Parpsbury at once. We have a great abundance of fish at our lake. Oh, well, all right then. You see, Mr. Pinkleton has so many lakes, but I bloody well haven't seen one fish in them yet. So I haven't. Oh, Tomo, we're going to have such brilliant fun. They stepped into the carriage and made the journey home from Pinkleton. Within the great hall, the bachelors twirled around the room with their prospective partners. Depending on the style of dance proposed by the orchestra, they would woo the ladies with a variety of techniques. Most popular this evening were the rustling goldfish, the tickle your fancy, and the don't be so silly, dear. But none of these moves were necessary for Pinkleton, as, despite his rather unsightly appearance from years of slight inbreeding, Marjorie would not leave him be. 
Many other women also eyed him up, yet they couldn't get a look in. She stared into his eyes, yet he stared elsewhere, looking for a way out. At one point he twirled her so hard he hoped she'd get so dizzy and lose sight of him completely. He sent her flying beneath a table, tearing off a tablecloth and leaving a garish mess upon the floor. Yet she always found her way back, throwing aside the woman that had taken her place in the meantime. Woman, what the devil is it you want from me? I want you, Pinkleton, and I will have you. I simply know it, Marjorie said. You have been parading round all night with your bosom thrust upon me, as if you were a salesman of ceramics, water vessels. I, I don't understand, Pinky. Ceramic water vessels, jugs. This past spring, your great big jugs. You clearly have little knowledge of the way of the gentleman. He does not revel in the bosom that is thrust upon him. It is the pursuit of the bosom that he takes pleasure in. Your dear sister Jemima, on the other hand, well, she clearly knows the inner workings of the male species. Where is she, anyway? I'll be sure we be able to woo her with the helping of tickle your fancy. Marjorie stood back, astounded by this outrageous attack. The whole hall was now awaiting her reply. How dare you, Mr. Pingleton? You should count yourself lucky I should press my bosom upon you. What with you looking like you could consume an apple through a tennis racket? The room gasped at her forthrightness. I believe you should know it is not your appearance nor your charm that I have been pursuing so vivaciously. It is your large estate, and your lakes, of course. She turned around and stormed to the exit, her face as disgruntled as a blind salesman in the village of the blind. He called after her. Well, the joke is firmly upon you, for I have an older brother away for many years now, yet still certainly alive. And he shall be inheriting the estate anyway. At the sound of this, all the fine young ladies awaiting their turn with Pinkleton sheepishly stepped away. Tomo and Jemima sat by the lake as the reflection of the moon glinted in their smitten eyes. Each had a rod dangling within the water, and peace filled the air. Oh, Tomo dear, do you know what Papa keeps saying to me? He says it's fisher-man, not fisher-lady. Isn't that ever so mean? Oh, it's funny you should say that, Jemima, because until you said about your love of fishing, I was very confused why your hands stunk so much of fish. You're the first fisher-lady I've ever met. I reckon there should be a new word to say what we are. What's that, Tomo? Do tell. Well, Fisher Person, he said. She flung her arms around him and cried. Oh, Tomo, for a man who speaks as silly as you, 
You really do have a way with the English language. A rustling came from behind them. They turned around to see Marjorie coming down the bank. Hello, love, said Tomo. Jemima just looked at her, remembering the wallop she'd taken with a copy of the Great British Guide to Angling. Hello, Tomo. Hello, Jemima. Can I join you? she said. Jemima could see this was not the time for returning a wallop, and her heart was so full of love that she did not have it in her to do so anyway. She passed the rod to Marjorie and said, Why, of course, sis- why, of course, sister. It's not fisher-man. It's fisher-person. Now that's how you do it, George. That is how you write a wittering story about hoity-toity poshos. Fish. You get fish in there, it's relatable. People can't relate to people. Um, I can't even give a reference to something that's happened in mid-March. You know, people saying, oh, I want to build some houses um, on your estate. Um that happens one of them wants to build some houses on another man's estate um but people can relate you know bonding over fish and um and simply bonding over shared experiences and true love and it's a real story of how fishing can um unite the classes in this instance, because, um, uh, well, clearly, Tomo is uh, a more working-class gentleman, and uh, Jemima is a hoity-toity lass, and their love of fishing unites the two of them. Both have a real stinky whiff. And then it just goes on to unite them with... Uh, with Marjorie because if you're engaged in the thing you love then all spite and like a desire to retaliate for a wallop you received um, just a a day previous it just goes away I don't know if you've ever felt that but when I'm uh, yeah when I'm firmly committed and uh, enjoying myself I no longer want to return a wallop. And if George Eliot was alive now, then she'd, uh, well, she could take a few lessons from old uh, the boondog here, whoever wrote um, this journey to Pinkleton, because that is how you, like, middle March could be that long, and I like it more. Um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm being a bit over the top, over the top about middle March. It's not as bad as it says, but as I sound, but, uh, the characters are all very annoying and that cannot be understated. (laughs) 
lot of people have been watching The Serpent recently, and I started with it, but I am just going to close by telling you I am giving up on The Serpent. It's a show, it's a show about a creepy bloody man who um, I think he does a thing called love bombing, which is not as great as it sounds. It's uh, he uh, he can't, he basically kills travellers in Bangkok and other places, and he's a creepy, creepy man. He invites them in with the conceit that um, they'll have some good times at his house, and then he poisons them. And I've given up on this show. I mean, I've watched actually I've watched four episodes. Well, I've watched three episodes. I missed the second one by accident. That uh, that led to a very embarrassing, um, not hugely embarrassing, but I told a lot of people that episode two was the most uh, panic and anxiety-inducing hour of TV you'll ever see. And then um turns out I was watching episode three, and episode two isn't that bad. So people thought I was a wimp. But I am... I did... I watched episode four, and then... It just sends me sends me in a in a frenzy. Sends me all panicky and weird. I think it's partly because, well, because it could be me. I've been to. I've been a traveller. And there was a, well, we've all done stupid things. But, I, well. My mum brought this up. I was at a half moon party, and uh, and like not a full moon, but when you're in Thailand, you've got to go to one of the moons parties, and now they're just cramming in moon parties wherever they can. So this was a half moon party. All my friends had uh, gone for various reasons. One had, um, I won't go into why they'd. Where where they'd gone, but they weren't there, and um, so I had to walk back. I didn't know where I was. I'd spent all my money at this party, at this half moon party, and had to leave. Uh, I don't know what time it was, and I had no idea where I was. And I walked down this street, shouting to taxi drivers the name of my hostel, and. And they would stop, and I'd be like, no, no, I've got no money, but I just need to know where it is. And then they'd point me on the way, and I'd keep on walking. I think I fell into a ditch at one point, and I went into, I have Seven Elevens there, uh, and I went into one of them, and I, um, and then I, what did I do? I think they had my card on me, but then, so I, they have these like instant noodles there, where you, you fill up the, they've got boiling water and you fill up the instant noodles there, and I filled up the instant noodles, and then took it to the counter, and then they said, oh no, we don't take card, and so at that point I was like, I. Well, I was just like, well, I've made these noodles now. They've got boiling water on them. What are you going to do? 
and uh, the amount of times they must have encountered that. Um, so they were just like, no, we'll have them. And so I pleaded with them for a bit, then left and carried on. And then I keep, kept on walking. I've got no idea. This must have taken, this tri- walk, uh, a sense of time. I don't know how long it took, an hour or two. Uh, I went, turned up at another 7-Eleven. I did the same thing. I thought maybe these guys, they'll have a bit more pity on the, the weary traveller. But again, well, the amount of times they've dealt with kind of, you know, they don't have sympathy for these people from these half-moon parties, for sure. These guys are just, you know, reckless westerners to them, which, fair enough, I was. And I made my noodles, and I went to the counter. I kind of hoped they'd take card, but once again, I mean, it's the same. It's also another 7-Eleven, so, yeah, they didn't take card either, and they declined my noodles. And I kept running, walking along... Shouting to taxi drivers, uh, where's my hotel? And they'd tell me. I mean, I'd, no, I would, I would shout the name of the hostel. I wouldn't just shout, where's my hostel? Because I wasn't that recognisable. It would be weird if they had a register of where I was. Uh, and at one point, some dogs, I was walking with some dogs, some stray dogs. And we were just walking along so it was uh, it could have been me that's all I thought uh, and then eventually I kept walking along walking along the coast shouting at people where's my hotel and eventually I got there and uh, I said that's just a little story to say it could have been me I could have been love bombed and I could have been I mean, if it was 40, 50 years earlier. So that's why I've given up on the serpent, because it's TV that makes you feel sick. That makes me feel sick anyway. And that's not what... I mean, TV's meant to be intense. It's meant to be entertaining. But it's not... It's gripping, but it's not like gripping in the way that you lose track of time. I kept looking at the clock, because I was like, when is this going to be over? And I did that like three weeks in a row. And then it's taken this week for me to realise I don't have to do that. I could watch other good things. Like I've just started The Great, which is uh, interesting as well. I've really rambled now. But I think it's because I'm sat in the dark. It's, um, you know, it's quite atmospheric. But a lot of people tend to use this uh, podcast to get to sleep too. So I'm sure this has helped. Um, but yeah, it's a nice little story for me to end on. Maybe we'll have more stories when uh, the podcast returns. Because it will return. It will return in full force. But it is a lot of work, finding stories. And uh, as I said previously, I think I'm going to write a novel. Because I've, you know, I've read so many stories now. I must have absorbed some of the skill of the boondog just from reading them. Uh, and so, yeah, you know, maybe I'll, next time I'll be back, I will have written a novel. I spent some money on stationery, and when you spend some money on stationery, you're going to use it. And so, 
Next time I return, you'll be hearing from a novel writer. And that is as simple and as easy peasy as that. And what does it say in my notes? I don't know. It just says... Yeah. God, I've rambled. All right. So, yeah, as I said, I'm going to write a novel. I'm going to do some vlogging, maybe. I'm going to go, in when we're allowed, I'm going to go into the woods. Not the woods. Uh, the woods are scary. Maybe just into the hills. And I'm going to camp. And I'm going to film it. And uh, there you go. All right. Here we go. I think I just don't want to say goodbye. But I will, and I bid you farewell. And all I can say is, stay safe, stay sane, and stay boondogging. Goodbye.